Yes, of course. Burl Bearer. <laughs> I've known a few writers who were rogues and vagabonds. And I'm Roger Moore. I didn't supply the microphone. Uh, all right. Live for the gleaming, streamlined, state-of-the-art studios of OutlawRadioLive.com, nestled in our secret bunker somewhere in the Los Angeles area. following program is produced by Magic Matt Allen on the Outlaw Radio Network. One of the finest networks in America, I might add. <laughs> That's a goodie. Yeah. The vote was taken, and it won. <laughs> I guess we're we're the only ones in the vote, huh? <laughs> well, hell yes. <laughs> As it should be. We stuffed that ballot box. Well, why why do we want to lose? <laughs> so we don't. <laughs> oh, uh, standard of a beleaguered and tempest-tossed true crime industry. I am Burl Bear. That is, what's his name? Oh, yeah, Mark Boyer. That's me. <laughs> Fact checker and co-host, Magic Matt Allen producing. And joining us on the phone, the star... Of uh, well, one of the stars of my brilliant new book, Stealing Manhattan, <laughs> is Punch Stadamirovic in the book known as Paul Stadamirovic, also known as Pavle Stadamirovic, a man of many monikers and many talents. Hiya, Punch. I assume. Hey, what's going on, guys? Hey, we're eager to talk to you. You know, you're a man of many talents and a very strange personality. <laughs> There's, there's a couple of things I've noticed about yeah, you. Tell me about it. Uh, that, that I want to get cleared up here because you you have insights, I'm sure, into you, and I know your mom does because we've talked about you behind your back. And that is, you are a gem heist mastermind, probably the second greatest gem heist mastermind in the history of the universe. Your dad being number one. Now, in order to do that, you have to have great attention to detail. You have to do some really incredible planning, really have things down to a really specific know what you're doing. You also tended to be, when you were younger, very impulsive, kind of hot-headed. Would you agree to that? Um, sure. Okay. Because I know your dad and you used to kind of get into it sometimes. and uh, All the time. <laughs> uh, all the time. <laughs> Yeah. Father-son dynamics. Father-son dynamics. And uh, there was a day or an evening when he sat down with you and said, listen, I'm going to paraphrase here. Why don't you quit while you're ahead? You got every, you've proven yourself. You got nothing to prove. We could retire now. We could go back to the old country, live like kings. You have all this money. You could have women, cars. We'll cage, <laughs> whatever you wanted. I'm afraid that if you continue as you're going, you're going to get arrested, you're going to get convicted, you're going to go to prison, and I don't want that to happen to you. I really hope you'll take my advice. But you didn't. No, 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 Dad. I didn't. I didn't take your advice. Absolutely not, because uh, I was, uh, I was in my own moment. And uh, I was in love with a, with a girl, and this kind of like derailed me from everything that I wanted to do with my father. And I used to get lost. So this is nothing new. My father understands this completely because his whole life is uh, also uh, based around uh, him falling in love. Yeah, he did that. And... If you want to know, uh, in the book, you mentioned Sidonia. Yeah. That was like his first love. 
this is one of the reasons why he had difficulties with his father. That's right. You're absolutely right. It's like a yeah. recurring life script issue. Uh, he was traumatized yeah. at an early age, and so were you. And uh, yeah. it's it's interesting how these things just kind of play out generation after generation. So he probably understood you more than you understood yourself. He knew. He knew. He, he knew what I was facing. He knew what I was going through. And he, he really tried to motivate me in the right direction. Because when you were with your dad, things seemed to go really well. But when you went off with the, with the bad influences, things didn't go as well. In fact, right after you left that with your dad, you went off with this guy, MoMA, to do the Miracle Watch Company heist. And that... Oh, it, wasn't, it wasn't just the Miracle Watch Company heist. That was just one of them. Uh, yeah, we, we caused a lot of damage. Um, I left my father's crew... Well, I got kicked out, one or the other. And uh, I said, well, you know what? I know how to steal. I'm the one that's been stealing. Um, my, father's, my father was actually like, um, like, like Coco, like Damir. Damir, he never went inside. He never uh, uh, was hitting the ground. He was always behind the scenes and he always hired other people to do that. So like my father. And... And I was like, who the hell is my father to tell me what to do when I'm the one that's opening all these tapes and uh, creating all this uh, wealth? So I left. And I went with uh, another person that got kicked out of the crew to Undesirable. And Momo and I somehow got together and, uh, yeah, started together. We did at least uh, 12, 13 heists together. Now, I find it interesting that you uh -huh. did the, when you did the Miracle Watch heist, which unfortunately you wound yes. up getting busted for, yes. that wasn't your fault on the bust on that one. You had a lookout that didn't, wasn't looking out. Right, Yuba, yeah. I bet uh, you weren't too happy with him. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, this is the reason if uh, things are not going uh, as planned, then uh, you, get, you get things that happen that you have no control over. And that's how I got arrested. Um, it was unfortunate. But at that time, I had a lot of things going on with Momo. We, we opened a restaurant downtown called Placeria del Teatro. <clears throat> and this turned into Color Ugly. People are familiar with that movie and story. But that lady, she, she bought the bar from us. And I mean, the restaurant from us. So, uh, and, and, and we had like things going on. But uh, this arrest uh, kind of like woke me up, you know, to reality because my mother was the one that was getting Ronald Rubenstein and, and Jojo Carrazzo, you know, as, as uh, you know, for my defense, not Momo. Yeah, Momo wasn't exactly in your corner there. No, he, he actually was uh, kind of like uh, laughing, uh, you know, laughing it off like, I was stupid and I got knocked, you know. Uh, but anyway, um, these are the type of things that, that, that mistakes get, you know, get made. And then um, uh, the cases get built up and caught um, against you, you know, if you keep on continuing 
to uh, execute these type of crimes. Now, I noticed that one of the guys who worked with you on this heist and several others was a very good friend of yours, who, in fact, uh, was known in a news article I read about him, who became rather infamous, is known as a man of a thousand aliases. And one of his aliases was Peter Stadamirovic, as if he were your brother. And that's Zoran Jasik. Now, he worked yeah. with you on that heist, and you worked with him on, on several other uh, enterprises. You two were very close. And uh, he went on uh, in his career path uh, to become, uh, shall we say, rather well-known or uh, huge, shall we say, international criminal. Yeah, let me uh, let me let me interject real quick. Um, there is there is there are two Zorans uh, in the story. Uh, there's, there's Zoran from Bar from Bari, little Zoran, and then you have Big Zoran. Uh, Big Zoran. He went on to work with uh, Mike Construction. He continued, and uh, Mike Construction is currently uh, in the federal system today. He'll be coming home in a, in a, in a year or two. Uh, Zoran, unfortunately, um, is sentenced to something ridiculous over 25, 30 years. And they just discovered an intricate multi-million dollar tunnel system underneath the prison system that Zoran was in and he was about to escape yep. and somehow that got busted. And they moved him to a maximum security penitentiary in Peru and uh, this is bad because, you know, his uh, his lifelong friend and partner is uh, also arrested for a PPE loan, you know, which is also ridiculous. But, I mean, these guys are bigger than the government. I mean, uh, you know, when you talk about, like, having connections, CIA and stuff like that, you know, uh, this is this stems from Nikola Kavaya and Boshko, Radoncic, and this is just a, an amazing, uh, formidable crew that they just know how to evade uh, the prison system very well because Mike is uh, actually sentenced to, like, 15 years or something in Italy. You yeah, know? He, he, so, can't, he can't go there. Yeah. But he's fine as long as he's in America, pretty much. You know, this it reminds me of of the situation with uh, uh, Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein on why he was never busted for all those years until there was that big article about him. Because yes. he was an asset to the yes. federal government. Yes. And uh, a lot of people don't realize is a lot of these big, uh, big criminals with big organizations are also tied in with our own government quite often as information assets because they're international in scope. They're dealing with all sorts of people internationally and can provide information helpful. Political. Yeah, political information that is helpful security. to the United States. Um, and for that reason... Yeah, security issues. These they, are, these yeah. are then they can, things that mean right. more to the government than a common crime or a drug deal. Right. So right? they become because more valuable to America. Yeah, they become valuable to America as as an asset of our security. And yes. therefore, like, like, well, okay, so they're shipping, uh, you know, tons of uh, cocaine to uh, to Europe, but they're, but they're saving our life by providing us with security information. It's a very yeah. interesting situation. In uh, Russia, for example, uh, 65% of their economy is tied in directly 
with the Russian mob. Now, our economy isn't 65%, but I wonder what percent is. You know, we don't have those figures, but we do know from uh, from our contacts, my personal contacts with the Russian mob that are cooperating cooperate with, with me on writing books, that up to 65% of the economy of Russia is criminal. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's, that's correct. Um, a lot of things that are happening right now with Odessa, Odessa, uh, Odessa is in uh, Ukraine. Uh, you know one of my very good friends from the prison system, Eugene Foster, is, uh, is a banker in uh, Crimea. He has like 10, 15 banks, and he became uh, a national, international banker. So, uh, you know, it's just interesting uh, uh, the characters that I've met throughout my journey uh, and, and the connections that I've made. They're just phenomenal today when I look back and then I see uh, Mike and then I see Zoran and then I see Eugene and I see all these guys, you know, uh, yeah, just a very colorful uh, cornucopia of, of, uh, of uh, I guess, elite criminals, right? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think that I'm reminded of something that uh, the great Shoki Effendi wrote in the 1950s, that is, Americans are naive as to the degree of corruption in their own country. Oh, yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, the, the, the America portrayed, let's say how to phrase this, the America that Americans believe in is not the America that truly existed. It's the one they wanted to, and the one that is put forth in the world, but not quite. <laughs> but this is, so this I, is I human like, nature, I like Mr. Stan's America. Mr. Stan's America was my America, not the one I grew up in. You know, uh, I lived in Mr. Stan's America for 40 years of my life. And what was the difference? Well, it was, it was, it was, it was phenomenal. It was great. It was just... Um, you know, we had uh, like a utopian, dystopian type, uh, you know, feel uh, around everything because I can't, I can't explain it other than, you know, like the Matrix or something. It's, it's so, uh, yeah. Like, I wake up and, and my job is to go look for hype, to go look for jobs. And imagine to find a, a sensational heist that I can pull off. And if it has potential, I would uh, mentally make a note, uh, and, you know, I'm not no semi-genius or anything like that, but I had a good memory, and, and this, is a, this is kind of a memory game because um, it's all what you see with your own eyes, you know, and, uh, and, and this information, if I could bring it back to my father, or to the professor, or Montenegro, or the moth, uh, any one of these guys, they would process it in a way that um, I would get a crew with tools, um, a lookout, you know, everything would be, um, like, there's a producer for this. Mm-hmm. And the person that's the producer is the one that reaps most of the benefit. Uh, the producer was always my father when he was working. Uh, if it wasn't my father, then, uh, you know, I was producing... After I took over, but my production was very short-lived, and I didn't have 
that uh, sensibility to unite people the way my father had everyone united. Yeah, the, uh, a friend of yours, Burl, yeah. uh, Henry Hill, Yes, um, he commented or, or made the statement that, you know, if they wanted something, they went out and took it. And they thought of the the people who were working nine to five and, you know, living paycheck to paycheck as schnooks. And then, so they were living in a different America than everyone else because they saw America as their candy store. And they will, If they wanted some candy, they would just go and get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a whole different mindset, a whole different perception. Yes. And the perception was makes the operational reality. Although that can change in a heartbeat. <laughs> For example, when you, uh, your dad suddenly decides, I think this was after the, some Fed came and handed him his card when he was out with John Gotti. When well, yipes stripes, let's uh, get out of here. Let's go back home. Let's go back to Yugoslavia. And you go back to just in time for a war. Was it the Bosnian Serbian? You know, you didn't plan on that. It's like, you know, uh, Murphy's Law, or this thing that I can't explain, keeps on happening in my life. But, yeah, he left, stopped me. My father sold most of the buildings, uh, houses, all the property, the stores, everything, and uh, cashed out. Um, I don't know how many millions of dollars it was, but he had suitcases filled with cash, all hundreds. And uh, my father uh, moved my mom and their family back to uh, Yugoslavia. It was still Yugoslavia because the war didn't start yet. And we were living, uh, I mean, the most remarkable lives over there because we had everything. We were building a house uh, that was overlooking the Avila Mountains, and it was just beautiful. I got accustomed to living over there. A lot of people that interview me, um, like international uh, podcasts, they seem to forget that I come from Serbia. I was always in Serbia. Every year, I would be in uh, Yugoslavia, uh, and uh, and uh, since. Since, since um, one year, since I was one years old, so I was I'm a citizen, and I go back and forth, and uh, this maybe they could understand this now more as uh, contesting my father from being like the genesis creator for all these other gangs and groups that are now established. Well, you know the you were asked recently on a podcast about the Pink Panthers. And I've always taken the position that you don't just be born knowing how to do all this stuff. Uh, someone has to train you somewhere. When I look at these guys that uh, get get busted, like uh, Coco and uh, what's his name, yes. Gorilla. Yes, uh, uh, you know what? The training comes in when you meet me and Mr. Stan. That's it's, right. It comes back to you. Someone had to train him, and I yeah. look at these guys, and you trained him. You know, yeah. you and your dad trained yeah. these guys, these Pink Panthers. Yeah. You know, they, they leave America, they go to Europe, and they're doing what you taught them how to do. But, yes, you need to know how to do this. And those that learned in Europe, they learned through my friends that I trained, that got deported, basically. 
So, and I know every name, every player, every person that was involved, even a little bit, even one time. Okay, you got guys that did this one time in their lives and they left successfully. You got guys that did this one time in their life and they got caught successfully. And then you got guys like me that just keep on doing this over and over and over again until it's like an addict. Like I was an addict and I could not stop unless I wanted to stop. So I could say the reason there's no Pink Panther highest in the United States right now is because you retired. Yeah, exactly. I told everybody. I mean, come on. Put the put all the timelines together. If you see Coco, Damia uh, uh, Pechinovic, he was uh, sentenced for 2015 um, uh, ball drop height in Times Square. The states that were in this place belong to Waka. Yep. Okay? And another thing is that... Um, I got arrested in 2003, okay? And that's the last time I've seen a Coco, I mean, Damiya, right? And I went to prison, and I didn't come out till uh, 2010. So um, I was on parole. Uh, as soon as I stopped my parole, he pulled off this, this uh, elaborate New Year's Eve height, and uh, they got away with it. But somehow, some where they got caught down the line. It was a few months after, like three months, four months after. Right. And they bagged him because he was living beyond his means on Park Avenue next to the richest people in the world. Then where do you get that money? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and I know all his brothers, and uh, he had real estate on Christopher Street in a notorious Bay district in Manhattan. And uh, he owned the Flatiron building there. And he was always in real estate and construction. And I even mentioned that he dated uh, my wife, Jessica, uh, her niece. And he gave her a Mercedes, uh, a convertible Mercedes, just like that, you know, because he was uh, generous like my father. Exactly. And he, he kind of reminds me uh, of, uh, like, he took my father's, uh, you don't see that he took, like, my father's, uh, an acrobat, you know, Strongman, right? And the whole entire story, um, just because people in Europe didn't connect it, and you're not saying that he's yaks or pink panthers, well, what is he then? Standing near the crime family? Where does he come from? You see what I mean? Yeah. I'm the only one that has a connection with him. So, like, I don't understand. I don't understand how people could be so uh, irrelevant when it comes to like putting pieces together. It's, it's right in front of their face, you know. So the only thing is that I retired in t uh, 10 years ago. And when I retired, I mean I retired completely. I'm a civilian today. I'm not a thief anymore. I got it out of my system. And I'm happily today. Do you know what I do today? Can you ask me, please, what I do today? What did you do today? <laughs> okay. I listen to Magic Matt Allen on YouTube, okay? That's yeah. what I do. I do this all the time. I love Magic Matt Allen. I think he's a consummate professional. And I absolutely love everything that he does. Uh, and also, I collect MetaZoo. Okay, that's a TCG thing. But MetaZoo games is uh, something that I collect, and I'm an artist. So I'm living the best life that I can live today. I don't have helicopters chasing me. I don't have the FBI knocking down my door. I don't have uh, any of these problems that I used to have. 
But uh, it's the first time in my life that I experienced hardship. I'm just being honest with you, because I'm not a thief. So another thing I want to say, that just the other day, just the other day, there was a, a flatbed that went through the Aventura Jewelry Exchange, and I don't know if you guys heard this on the news, but this is Pink Panther Operandus. Like, this is how what they do best. And these guys, ran, they try to get a safe out early in the morning before the exchange is open, and they failed. These four guys, they got away with it, but this was a big deal because this is a, a, a jewelry exchange. So do people come yeah. to you and say, help us catch these guys? Oh, I would love if they came to me to, uh, to ask me because, you know, I'm the only one that knows how to solve things like this, you know? Come on. You know, uh, for me, this is second nature. And if you've never been in the ring, how can you, how can you fight? How can you fight this fight if you never got punched in the face? You know? You'd be a great security advisor, Hello? you know? You'd be a great security advisor. Jewelry exchanges should hire you to protect them. That would be a dream job for me to do. And uh, in reality, I've been a security advisor for many years. Just not really officially because I never opened my own company or anything like that. But I do work for other people if they need something soft or safe open or something like that. Um, Mike Molina from Sunny Isles Beach called me uh, a few months ago and he was like, can you please open a safe for me? You know, uh, there was this multi-millionaire that forgot his combination and he had a bunch of jewelry and diamonds in there and stuff like that. So I get calls all the time. So did you open the safe? No, uh, the guy found out who I was and he kind of declined and he got a locksmith. He paid a locksmith. <laughs> he wanted to pay me. Yeah, it was funny. He said he paid $400 and they opened it. But, uh, you know, I said I was going to do it for free. And, and the guy really wanted to pay somebody, so... He was probably afraid your stuff would vanish. Maybe you'd go back to your old ways, and but you wouldn't do it. Yeah. You you didn't steal from individuals anyway, so we shouldn't have been worried. No, no, that's another great uh, aspect, right? That I have uh, that no one else has because I never crossed that line. I would never steal anyone's personal property. I think that's horrible. I don't like for it to be done to me, and no one likes their stuff to be stolen. Uh, and imagine somebody seeing Magic Matt, Magic Matt Allen cigars, <laughs> something like that. No, you Magic like, Matt would not like know, someone stealing his cigars. You know, no, 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 he would be very and, upset. <laughs> and uh, I think that uh, there's, a, there's a sanctity to having your personal property not invaded by a, a foreigner and profiting from it. And this is something I would not do, no matter what, no matter how easy. Yeah. It's like taking candy from a baby. But, uh, yeah, morals. And another thing I realized with the book Stealing Manhattan, there was one individual that left a poor review, I think two stars, and they said they can't believe how the author is justifying the, the crimes or the, and, and what they don't understand is that I was not a criminal in the sense of criminal ways, because criminals are very bad people. They punch you in the face, and they take you stuff, and, and they rape you, and they kill you, and, and that's not what I do. 
That's not what I did. No, you you and your dad only only like in that that billion dollar mega heist in 1992, ten jewelry manufacturing firms all insured for a hundred million dollars or more. It's all an inside gig, you know. They were happy to be robbed because they're full of. Do you know? Oh, it's like the old joke, and I mentioned this. If you go to the Wild Blue Press website, and I have a blog post up there where I, I mentioned this. The joke in the Diamond District is: Did you hear about the heist of my jewelry firm? No. When was it? Two weeks from Tuesday. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Of course. Listen, everything goes into everything. People profit heavily, and this is this is just another way of profiting. They do it with Medicaid, Medi- Medicare, they have fraud everywhere, credit card fraud, they have things. I mean, uh, look, this is just what people do. Mr. Stan found a way to steal millions of dollars without hurting people. And he was genius. He was genius because the entire uh, schematics of, of how, remember a perfect storm, you have 47 streets, you have hundreds and hundreds of jewelry stores, diamond dealers, all next to each other. It was, it was like putting everything in one giant vault that's, that's, that's one block big. Okay? And that's exactly what we have. And now, the security aspect, the, the person that, that's in charge of the security, the state, is intermingled with with my father, with us. And he's not a bad man. He's going after bad people that are conniving, that are stealing, that are, uh, you know, doing uh, uh, bad stuff. This is not like honest people. You know, he, he really targeted uh, guys that, that were very shady. I got a kick out of the fact that your dad comes down one day and whacks you over the head with a newspaper. <laughs> because the place that you hit, you got the millions in uh, diamonds, precious gems, etc. But you kept tripping over these canvas bags. Canvas bags were filled with cash that this firm was doing money laundering. And the feds were watching you as you robbed them and didn't do a damn thing about it. Because it was Operation El Dorado and the feds' job was to get these money launderers. And they watched you rob them for their diamonds. They didn't care. And they came in in the morning and arrested those guys. Uh, And everybody calls me smart. Oh, punch, you're so smart. You're so smart. No, no, I'm very stupid. I left $23 million behind. (laughs) But that's okay. They got those guys on the money laundering, and they, they, they were selling business a year later when you went back. Edo got $1.5 million or more. I was happy. I was happy with the $3 million. Um, it's just that after we robbed this place, I didn't come out the same way I came in. That's why the feds were confused, because I went out the back way. I went in the front way. Um, all they do is have, a, all they, all they have, all they have is a recording of you going in and not going out. Um, they panicked. They arrested 12, 13, 14 people the next day. Uh, they took out all these money bags, these draft bags. They were all filled with money, uh, millions of dollars each bag. Um, 
I was kicking this because I really didn't understand it. I couldn't comprehend what these bags were doing <laughs> in a room that was a work room, but the work room was not actually working because all the tables were on top of each other and it was like closed. So these draft bags were like under the tables and all over the place. And there were so many of them, 15, 20, 30 bags. I don't know. There was, was the whole place was filled with bags. And, um, and the only way I, I found out is because the newspaper said $23 million. <laughs> okay. and, and, but that's not the first time that I was on a front page newspaper. The, the, the first time was with Momo, and I did Miracle Watch Company. Uh, the white place, they arrested me, and the person, the cop that arrested me was actually a dog. <laughs> yeah, you get arrested by a dog. So, yeah, major case squad dog, major, major, uh, like uh, emergency service unit dog by the name of Billion, and they had a uh, they had the dog on the front page of the paper getting a steak from uh, Smith and Walensky's or you know one of those steakhouses. Lucky dog. The brother that got busted with me, that Billion the dog actually bit him. Uh, he was attacked by the dog. That's the brother of Boya Kadovich. Boya Kadovich is one of the guys that I give credit to for making the Pink Panther game. Because he is the guy that started Mash and Grab in New York City in the 80s and 90s. Way before the Pink Panther game existed. Because their existence is 2004. Europe, Mayfair Hotel, London, okay? Mm -hmm. And you're on and I know all the players of that crew, and, and I know a lot of the guys that are intermingled with the European crew, and that's Vicky, and Steve Jovanovich, and Bruno Salat. And Bruno Salat is a Polish gentleman, and his cousin is the professor. And Vicky, the professor was your dad's best buddy. Yeah, Professor is uh, the guy that I say he's B.B. Cooper because he used to bring me comic books that were called B.B. Cooper and they were in French because they were Belgian comic books. And this guy used to travel the world uh, uh, for American Express. And he was making millions of dollars in the 70s by being one of the first gentlemen thieves to burn... American Express, and he traveled everywhere from Japan, back to Germany, to Europe, to Honolulu, all over the place. But yes, he's my father's friend, he's a gentleman, and uh, an extremely interesting character that has articles on him in that spy magazine that John Connolly wrote, and we all know that John Connolly was the guy that was chasing after me while I was in prison in Rikers Island, and he was trying to date my mom, and He's trying to do anything to get this story. And uh, he went on to do a Steven Fidal story after that, but he's the first one to break this group of thieves in Spy Magazine, 1992 article, mm -hmm. and he included the Albanians, and that's how the feds kind of like said, oh, these are, these are like, you know, the Yaks, Yugoslavia and Albanian, Croatian, yeah. but they never existed. Nothing, nothing like that ever existed, not in our eyes. We were just... Mr. Stan's guys. So it's actually the Senator the crime family. It was, uh, yeah, it was different. Uh, different than, than any mob or mafia with capos and regimes and soldiers. It was 
Like you say, some guys would do one heist and uh, go open yeah. a real estate company. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Yeah. And then we got guys like me. I became, I was a street boss. But I wasn't always a street boss. Before that, I was a copy boy. I used to, I used to um, polish the tools and make sure there was no fingerprints or stickers on it. You know, I used to clean it with alcohol. I used to prepare the bags. Even when I was seven, eight years old, when I was with the mark in Astoria, like, you know, I used to get paid in these big, uh, you know, gold coins, American coins, uh, you know, the $20 coins. Yeah. Uh, and and uh, I used to have a, a bunch of those, you know, and, and I used to get paid in jewelry because I used to make the best coffee at seven, eight years old, you know. <laughs> but I, I'm very rare. Not that I brag about it. It's not a great life that I had. I wish I could trade it with someone, you know, so they can see. Uh, it, it was very stressful because my father was living under the flight of a fight uh, mode, and his whole family suffered behind it because, you know, there was a lot of tension, and uh, he lived that type of lifestyle. So he was brought to the home, and a lot of these things that came from the family of Slavia, they were sleeping on my couch because they had nowhere else to go. So, you know. Well, I remember one like, story, and I think it said in the book Stealing Manhattan, where the chief of police of New York City buys your dad and you drinks and says, now remember, Stan, the people in your crew have to have real jobs. They can't just be doing heist for a living. You know, they got to actually have real employment. Oh, yeah, don't worry, they do. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. And uh, Mr. Stan was successful at construction and he was making legitimate money, you know, 10, 20, 30,000 dollars each job, and he's working for museums, artists, and that's the connection with, uh, you know, Philip Pilstein and all these art guys because my father was always maintaining a job, always worked, he was always a super of building, and, you know, he gave people jobs. He employed people. When they wanted Mr. Stan to be an actor, he gave other people jobs to be an actor. You know, he always used his contacts and connections. So he was he was one of the guys that you know they wanted him to be the godfather of of anything that was uh, Yugoslavian, Serbian, any kind of organization. But why would he want that? He he, he didn't want any of that. He was just you know doing things. Uh, accordingly, and he didn't want any fame uh, on that end. Now, he wasn't like John Gotti. John Gotti was, was, was uh, sucking up all the fame. My father didn't want to be known. Yeah, he knows he got a little upset the day he was out with John Gotti, and a Fed comes up and hands him his business card. <laughs> he thought he was all... yeah, um, this is a true story because I still have the business card today. Okay? And, uh, uh, the, the FBI agent has an apparent last name. This is at Regime. Okay, there's a place in Manhattan, Regime, and Club 21. And my father and John Gotti, they used to go out. I was in school in Switzerland, and uh, a few nights I went with my father, and, I, and I'd seen John Gotti, and I met John Gotti personally. And, and I told you, I, I was on um, Mulberry Street and Mott Street for the fireworks with David Calderazzo, and uh, I got to really know John Gotti when he came to my house for barbecues and stuff like that. So... Like, but I never knew Junior. I never knew his son, um, never his wife or anything like that, uh, just outside. And my father brought me. And uh, John, he always say that he has a son too. He has a tough son. He has a tough son, you know, an athlete, a football player. 
Uh, but I was living the life while John Jr. was not. Huh? Isn't that something? Hmm. Well, also, I want to say one more thing. I apologize. I forgot. The heist that my father did with John Gotti, this is something that they did. I think they did two heists, and unfortunately, both of these heists were unsuccessful. Yes, I John recall. Gotti had a garbage truck that shook down the street. You know, Fifth Avenue, Fifth Avenue, and uh, and we all know that John Gotti got arrested by this one cop that was uh, obsessed by him. Joe Coffey was his name. That's his name, Joe Coffey. That's right. And Joe Coffey was actually introduced to my father as an alarm expert by John Gotti's crew, and the person that busted this theory was the mob. Right, he told your dad, this guy's a cop. <laughs> he, he, yeah, he cut the whole, he cut the line of the whole federal building, the telephone line of a federal building, and this caused so much chaos that we were about to hit the BBC. Not me, I wasn't involved. I was in Switzerland in school, but this is, this is the story that, that I know. And, uh, and, I mean, but there was so many guys. My father worked with four or five guys, you know? My father said that there was like 30 guys working his job. It was incredible. John Gotti had sandwiches for everybody. You know, it was incredible. It was, it was just like a show, you know? And uh, like he had a license to do it. Like, don't worry about it. I got business to stand. <laughs> you know? Yeah, dude, the boss is going, Stan, this guy is a Funny cop. Though. This is a cop. <laughs> yeah, he's a cop. And he he's actually gets credit for arresting John Gotti like three, four times. Yeah. Another connection that we have that Mike, my construction and uh, Zoran. These guys, they were going back and forth with the money for George Poop, the guy that said, uh, that forgot everything on, on the stand, and John Gotti got a uh, acquittal. Okay? And yeah. this is because Bosco had, you know, he knew the guy that, that, that was taking the stand, and uh, they got like $60,000, and I was involved with that money trade or something. I think I, I, I dropped off the money, 20000 or something, and... When I, was, when I was home from school or something like that, and I remember going with them because, remember, I was attracted to these guys. This, this is my family. My uncle, you know, my father, his friends. That's my family. Well, what a strange, strange life. You know, but it was, well, but what's normal to one person is unusual to another. And that was, it's kind of like what your mom said to me. She says, what did I know about sophisticated Criminals. Uh, everything I knew about America, I learned in uh, my husband's fancy uh, apartment in New York. She came here when she's 18, right? She marries your dad, who's 20 years older than she is. He's rich. They live in a fancy place. She meets the professor. What a nice guy. <laughs> well, you know, it's what a phenomenal is... story. And before, I, before I was born, they get arrested at the Viscaya Museum. You know, I mean, for the Versailles Museum, I'm sorry. And in New York City, in a Fifth Avenue apartment, they get raided, you know, and uh, they arrest my mom. They arrest Alex Karolanovich, another character that gets uh, the credit for being in Tampa. This guy is from this town in Belgrade that's not niche. It's called Zemun. And it's next to Belgrade. And this whole entire town 
is the type of town that if I needed to leave the United States, I would go over there and you would never find me ever again because they would protect me. And this is what they did constantly. Um, I listened to the podcast and there was many, many um, uh, people that were uh, giving their own their own uh, like theory, right, about the Pink Panthers. Right. And you know what? I was very stupid, but they actually gave me an opportunity to call back many, many, many times. And I, uh, I, was, going, I was going through the death of my father, and I kind of dropped the ball on that. But uh, I'm glad that you have this opportunity here to clear anything up because um, there. You worked on the story for many years, and once you sunk your teeth into this, into Mr. Stan's America, right, mm-hmm. you seen that he was more like a Robin Hood character. Well, yeah, because he got into this to help people with their cash flow, plus they were being extorted by the security companies and the insurance companies, that you buy this or else. And he turned the game on their head and uh, helped them. Uh, he helped the merchants. Yes. And that was a, a nice thing. He's, he did identify with, uh, he felt he was like Robin Hood, yeah, helping the yeah. people out. He didn't yeah. see himself as a uh, as someone taking advantage of anybody. And he was yeah. remarkably generous. Because oh. I've talked to people who knew your dad. You know, in researching this book, I went to people that, that uh, I found out were neighbors of your dad or knew your dad or interacted with him. And they all said the same thing. Couldn't have asked for a more kind generous, compassionate person in the world than your dad. Yes, yes. And and this is something, a trait that he had that I didn't possess. And this is why I couldn't keep the crew going as long as I, as long as he did. You know, and he he was a ruler. He ruled like he was just a broke teacher, almost, you know, like he had everybody uh, working together happily and today, I think it would be impossible to do this today. It would be impossible to emulate what he started. And I'm just grateful that even though I got beaten and I was beat down and I went through the prison system and, and all this bad stuff, right? Even though I still had this like inner passion and, and uh, this Vinicius Croix, but it's like that Gangs of New York, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio about mm. his dad. It, it, it's something like that. It has this, this uh, I don't know, I, I, this silver lining, I guess. You know, because today, I get to talk about it. And, and I get to relive it. I get to relive these heights by, by talking about it with you guys. And I think that's, that's like my favorite thing in the world. Well, I'll tell you, uh, I think one thing you and I are going to do is we're going to go on the speaking circuit of corporations and colleges <laughs> and universities because you're a great entertainer in person telling these stories. And I think between the two of us, we could put on a hell of an entertaining show and uh, and be a real source of entertainment and education. Interesting. I agree. If you have bad actors like Jordan Belfort going on tour all around the world and, and he still owns people money, I don't agree with what he did. He took money from old ladies. You know, he took money from poor people. I don't like that. I don't think that's good. And not only that, he cooperated and he's a snitch. He's a rat bastard. And he's getting all this 
uh, fame and glory because he did Wolf of Wall Street. Let me tell you something. I know the guy personally, and I saved his life in prison. And he, you know, he told me his story before it happened. And I told him my story, and he says, oh, my God, your story is amazing. It's so much better than my story. And I said, yeah, I know, because there's a hundred, hundred guys like you, uh, Jordan, you know? And, and he knows that. And, and, and all he was doing was making money, getting high, and fucking people over, part of my friend. Uh, and he still didn't pay back what he was supposed to pay back. And he still owes, but he's still living uh, this fantasy life that he lived when he was still. And I just don't understand this, you know, so. Sorry yeah, well, as the they point, say, that's showbiz. What's right is right, and what's wrong is wrong. I have a question for the two of you. Yeah. Uh, have you started uh, Volume 2 of Stealing yeah. Manhattan? Punch has been making his notes and writing up stuff. Haven't you, Punch? What about again? Uh, he wants to know if we're working on Volume 2. Oh, it's coming out tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe not quite. But uh, Punch has been working, uh, working on his part of it. And then when he gives it to me, then I'll do my part of it. We'll put it all together, and Volume Two will come out. Be so exciting! Uh, well, after the, the first volume was Tony fascinating, uh, the second volume should be really. Second volume is even even as much fun or more fun than Volume One. Stealing Manhattan: The Untold Story of America's Billion Dollar Gem Heist Masterminds is, of course, available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Libras, wherever fine books are sold, please buy several copies today and give it a glowing and review. And use them as doorstops. Yeah, it makes great doorstops. Well, we yeah, don't care as long as you buy guys. What's that? Buy the book and I'll sign it for them. Yeah. Oh, very nice. Yeah. What they need to do, what people need to do is buy this first edition book, give it to me, I'll sign it, and I'll send it off to PSA for grading. So it comes back sealed. And then you buy another book and read it. <laughs> I love it. It's a collector's item. Exactly. Exactly. It's a wonderful idea. What's that? Uh, Good heavens. What oh, is Magic I Matt see, putting up here? I think we got here? a delivery. Oh, what is that? Newskies. Mm, looks delicious. Okay, what's next? Newskies. It's uh, Midwest. Uh, and it is a uh, purveyor of fine meats. Fine meats. Boy, I'll tell you, I took a diuretic today. I hope this show's over soon or I can whip my pants. <laughs> uh, it will be, uh, it will be uh, uh, over shortly. Um, in, the, in the next volume, do you discuss uh, any of the other activities you were involved in that didn't involve jewelry or diamonds? Yes, 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 absolutely. That's, we're going to do that next time. And I just want to commend Matt, uh, Magic Matt Allen on Rumble and on YouTube. You know, his, uh, his channels are doing amazing, and I just want everybody to uh, check in and, uh, and show the love back. Yeah, well, it's There's coming that. up right after this. Yeah, they can watch it on yeah. YouTube. Punch I'm going to. Yeah. watch it live. Yeah, Punch always That's watches you on YouTube, Matt. Wonder Hudson. I love it. He <laughs> loves it. We do, we, do, we do love Sarah Jane. <laughs> and I get to see all you guys live. Yeah, I guess. I love the see. way Matt has that set up because I can watch you guys, and I love when you put the rabbit ears on. <laughs> ah, well, I'm sorry, but uh, hey, your daddy loves the way you put the rabbit ears on. Well, but... I'm um, I'm sorry, sir, but what hump? <laughs> what hump? What rabbit ears? <laughs> <laughs> well, best show ever. I'm telling you. Oh, well, Shabbat Shalom. <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, anyway, uh, Sean Sullivan is doing big things at my little brother in New York, and uh, he has all my uh, rap sheets and pictures and stuff like that. And I want him to hook up with uh, Matt Berkowitz, the son of cinema. Mm. And I hope they did already because Sean is putting on these uh, weed shows, these weed events. Yeah. That they're smoking hash. <laughs> and he's over there with Chip Quigley. Yeah. And uh, he's a famous producer in New York also. I'm giving them a shout out, you know, but uh, with Kingdom Entertainment and stuff like that. These guys are huge. They're in the Hamptons. So, you know, white parties and uh, we need to get Magic Matt Allen out there and, uh, and, and see what's going on. Oh, Magic Matt Allen would, would love out there. Uh, you want to go to New York, Matt? Hey, Matt, you want to go to New York yeah. City? He loves New York. He used to be a star in New hey. York, you know. I remember when Matt was with G100. Yeah, he remembers correct. that, Matt. He used to listen to you on the radio. Magic Matt. That's why we could play the hit. He's, he's one of the rare guests that I've... Uh, yeah. He's one of your rare guests. That was like 91, 92. During my time. Yeah, he was one of your fans. Well, what? I remember him from Matt. His voice uh, is very indistinguishable, and he has that <laughs> magic voice, that radio voice. He has that radio well, voice, he does. He sounds like a real announcer. <laughs> well, he is. He is. As opposed to me with the squeaky high, the squeaky <laughs> That's high right. voice. That's right. It yeah. doesn't sound like that in my head when I'm talking. But when you listen back to the show, you go, I go, who the hell is that? that? God, that's a horrible voice. But that's showbiz. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Punch, thank you. Thank you, Punch, for coming on. Coming on, and we'll have you on again. Thank you very much. I'm honored. I'm honored. I love Thank you, guys. You're welcome. Fantastic. All right. As mentioned, Burl. Yes. What's next? Magic Matt Allen of the Deepest of Decadence live in the Lightning Lounge on Outlaw Radio Live.com. Ah.